This episode of the Hope Podcast is brought to us by the Spotlight Project. Uh, the Spotlight Project is a fantastic organization run by fantastic people with the mission of raising employment for individuals with intellectual or developmental disabilities. They create and sell beautiful jewelry, and each individual they employ uh, has an intellectual or developmental disability and a unique story to tell. You can visit them at the Spotlight Project. Co.com. Again, thespotlightprojectco.com. Use the coupon code HOPE, H-O-P-E. Again, use the coupon code HOPE for 15% off your order. If you guys enjoy the show today, if you could uh, please leave us a uh, review um, and subscribe to the podcast, it would help us out a lot. And we have a really great story today with my friend Trudy, uh, who just celebrated 30 years of uh, sobriety last week. And um, went from pleading with God to take her life to becoming um, a really positive, uh, happy, and successful person. She's now uh, a vice president at one of the largest investment banks in the world and uh, has a great life, uh, great family, and great hobbies outside of that. Welcome, Trudy. Thanks so much for joining us today. How's everything going? Pretty darn good. It's a gorgeous day out here in Paradise. I had a uh, a 7.30 Zoom call this morning that put me on on center. And, you know, I'm uh, living life, living life large in a small world. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're really grateful and blessed that you you were willing to come on with us today and share your story and uh, share a little hope with us. Um, there's so much power in sharing your story, and, and um, people relate to to you, your perspective. I've I've been fortunate enough to um, to hear parts of your story along the way. And, you know, I like to start at the beginning, kind of what transpired at the beginning of your story. Well, the you know my problems all came from me, mm-hmm. came from my thinking, and I uh, was born to two lovely parents who had a hard time expressing their emotions. Um, They could express their fears, but, you know, hugging was nothing that, you know, was not something that we saw in in the household growing up. And, you know, there were eight of us spread 18 years apart. And when I was uh, born, I ruined my sister's 10th birthday. So starting, you know, life, I was a destructor. You know, my, her mom, our mom was in the hospital with me and she couldn't have a birthday party. And, you know, when I was a baby, you know, I was miserable, irritable, and discontent. You know, I cried. Just just an unhappy crybaby. And that, that was one of my nicknames I had growing up. And another one was uh, Dirty Gertie from Great Neck. Another one was Spider monkey, and I was really skinny with a lot of energy, and you know, going to school in our, our uniforms. My uh, shirt was always you know astray; it wasn't tucked in and neat, and my hair was going all over the place. We had a, a woman who took care of us because there were so many kids, and I had a younger sister who was you know, quieter and more cerebral than I was and had this 
glorious mane of red hair and it was always um, manicured so perfectly and our nanny would, you know, spend time putting it in, in rollers and looking nice. And no matter what you did with my hair, it was like a mess. It was all over the place. You know, so I, I was, you know, that's why they gave me these names. I was kind of plain looking. I had these big eyes and, you know, this smile and this laugh. And, you know, they didn't know what to make of me. And I didn't know what to make of me either. When I was a little girl, they found a lump on my back of my leg. I must have been maybe seven years old or something. And um, they operated on it. And I can remember that my dad uh, played cards with me in the hospital. And that was really, you know, the only time that we had any kind of interaction at all. Because he was pretty busy, you know, with his job and playing golf. And he, he just didn't know how to communicate with kids. He had a sister and a demanding mother who lived with us. So he, he just didn't know. I can remember going to school, going to Catholic school. We would drive up in a Cadillac and my mother would have, you know, our gardener drive us. So like, you know, we had a chauffeur. We also lived in, in a Jewish community, and we were the only house that had Christmas lights on the block. And, you know, they would laugh at us walking our dog carriages down the street. And so there was, like, not the camaraderie that you would have, you know, in a neighborhood. It was just, just wasn't there. And then it was, you know, play with all your brothers and sisters. So you play with all your brothers and sisters. But, you know, there was more, there wasn't this togetherness among the brothers and sisters as um, I find that we have today. It sounds like status was, was important in your, your neighborhood growing up. Is it, was that kind of um, the way it was? Well, yeah, I think back then status was important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we lived in, in a more affluent uh, neighborhood than I would say most of the, the kids at my my grammar school you know one day a girl came up to me and she goes Gertrude the reason why no one likes you is that you're so ugly and it was like wow look at that I learned two things about myself one I learned that I was ugly two I learned that no one liked me so from there on, I felt like I was the kid. I incorporated this into my psyche that no one liked me. And, you know, I was the last kid to be picked on a team. I felt, you know, apart from, I identified in church. It was that time where they would show a, um, a girl from a, an underprivileged community with a bowl of rice for them, you know, really gaunt and skinny, and I identified with her. I, I, that's who I identified with. It's amazing for me, knowing you as an adult, and uh, and just knowing the type of person you are, to, to hear that you thought of yourself like that uh, when you were younger, because uh, nothing could be further from the truth from my experience. Well, you know, and it's amazing, because even to this day, there is still that part of my brain 
that wants to repeat those old things and say, see, no one likes you. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then, you know, when you look at the facts, that is the furthest thing from the truth. You know, that is, that is a blatant lie. And I find that I can lie to myself, and I can lie to myself very effectively. I think humans are uh, amazing at, at lying to themselves and building these beliefs and then just, just gathering circumstantial evidence to pile on top of it and really just, it's a vicious circle of misery. You know, when you look at it objectively from above or uh, looking back, it, it really doesn't make any sense, but it's just how our brains work. It really is amazing to just hear that that was a, a thought and still a thought to this day for you, just, just knowing the type of person you are. And Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, our brains are really, really powerful. Unless you can control your thinking, you're, you're lost. Mm-hmm. Because I firmly believe that each and every one of us has the ability to be a Mother Teresa or an axe murderer. And it's, it's a function of what you focus on and, and what you develop into your brain. It's, it's interesting because, you know, there's no bad baby. There's no baby that's born into the world and, and, and is bad. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's such an important point um, in, in our society today with, with so much of the kind of evil, objective evil you see around is that but everyone's born good and um it's the stories people tell children uh that then children begin to tell themselves and then those children begin to tell other people about themselves and uh, that becomes their reality and it, it's sad when when people um early on in life are told false stories about themselves about the world and about others i, I think that's why it's so important that we talk about it and people who kind of gone through this process hit rock bottom and and realize these things can can share their experiences share their stories, share their hope with people going through that right now kind of wondering am i a bad person is, is i made this mistake this mistake this failure am i a bad person and the answer is no you know, when I, I was a young uh, girl, actually when I probably in grammar school, my mother and my grandmother met daily and had cocktails. They would have Manhattan and we'd sit and we'd have cheese, Triscuits and cheddar cheese every afternoon. And I would have the cherries and they would be delicious. Many, many years later, my older sister told me, that my grandmother had said to my mother, don't tell her how smart she is. It will go to her head. Oh my God. And so I had no idea that I had a brain in my head. None whatsoever. And um, it wasn't until that I was in college that this man said to me, you know, you can do this. And that was the first time that anyone had said to me that you can do this. It wasn't the nuns, it wasn't the guidance counselors, because the guidance counselors and and the nuns would say, you're not college material, you don't belong there. And you know, then, you know, I look back in my life and I see things that I had figured out that other people were in awe that I figured out. And I was like, well, that's rather interesting. How come I didn't know this before I was, you know, 18 years old? 
up until the time that I was 18 years old, I thought I was like a Barbie doll. You know, and what, what happened was I started drinking. Whenever our parents went away, we would have big parties in the house. We, you know, we would do that. And, you know, the most important memory that I have is probably when I was about 15 years old. I remember this girl's name. She was a, a dear friend of mine, and she lived in, in a, a, a more Christian town than us. And I went to her town, you know, many miles away from where we grew up. It was New Year's Eve, and she put on the mantelpiece. Her parents were out. She put on the mantelpiece several different shots of liquor. And we were going to share these shots of liquor. And she left the room. And while she was gone, she I drank all of them. Sharing was not a part of my... Uh, when it came to drugs and alcohol, you could share with me, but I was not too interested in sharing with you. And I ended up uh, in a snowbank. I went looking for my boyfriend at the time. But the thing about alcohol was that I didn't feel stupid, which I thought I was. I didn't feel ugly. I had people who thought I was entertaining and they wanted to be, you know, me, have me be a part of their life. It was like, it was like a miracle. It was, wow. It was a game changer for me. All of a sudden, I was popular, I was funny, I was pretty, and you know, so I had this boyfriend, so I'm scouring this town looking for him. I ended up in a cop car. I believe I puked in a cop car. And back then, I wasn't driving, I was walking, driving, drunk while walking, DWW. <laughs> and uh, they called my, they found out where I belonged, they called my house. New Year's Eve, my father was too upset to come pick me up. My brother and his uh, fiance came to pick me up and they drove me to my home and there they were, all my brothers and sisters around the corners of the room. And I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is all over for me. I am here is the problem. You know, and they believed that I was going to a nunnery, that this was it, that I would never, they'd never see me again. And I'm lying in bed, and I think it's my sister who's knocking on the door. And it was my father knocking on the door. And I said, fuck you. I mean, can you imagine this? 15 years old. And my father, now, let me, let me, my father worked in construction. Mm -hmm. My father was a tough guy. We would often refer to him as the Fuhrer. So whenever, you know, his car door slammed, we would scurry and make ourselves, you know, invisible, you know, so you couldn't find us. That was, that was not a pretty experience at that point. How did, how did he take that? He didn't take it well. <laughs> I can't imagine. He didn't take that well. And, you know, it was like, oh, my God. 
you know, they blamed it all on that other girl, which was the farthest thing from the truth. You know, it wasn't her. But, you know, the first time I smoked a cigarette with, was with her, you know, you know, the trouble began around her. But, you know, well, I was the problem. Well, it can't be, I mean, uh, it can't be good for, for status to have people think that, you know, your daughters is doing these types of things. So... I'm sure a part of it was was them wanting to tell themselves that it was it was someone else's fault and, and you know it couldn't be your fault. No, it couldn't be my fault. You know, and I think you know my mother took me shopping after that. I mean, that was my mother's ability to show us love was through going shopping. Many of us in my my family um, have this thing when the tough get when the going gets tough, the tough go shopping. <laughs> so New York toughers. Go shopping and you know just the pressure and stress alone of, of what you've told us is is enough to make anyone want to drink. But it, it, was there anything else that happened while you're in high school that really uh, kind of sticks out you know in your mind as as something that tragedy you wanted to run from? Well, I mean the whole thing was tragic. Mm-hmm. I mean high school, you know high school was not easy. The nuns were not easy. You know it was we were driving two hours each day to go to a Catholic high school when there was a fine one. 10 minutes away, walking distance, basically. What was the reason your, your parents wanted you to go there? Because you did what they said to do. Right. You know, there was really, there was not really an option. You just did what, they said you do this, you do this. I had, you know, one sister got to go to the public school, which was a, a miracle, but she she was the only one. Another sister got to go, you know, in the next town, but the baby got to go to the one in the next town. But, you know, when I was, 16 years old, my best friend in high school, you know, I I just adored her. She was such a great girl. We went for her 16th birthday, sweet 16. Her parents took us out. They they picked me up. They dropped me off. We had a birthday party. There were probably six of us, you know, in in the car. And on the way, after they dropped me off, on the way home, uh, her car got hit by a drunk driver, and she died. And this was absolutely devastating That's to me. Tragic. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm so sorry to hear that. And you know, my parents just did not have the ability to process information ad- adequately. Mm-hmm. So my mother was coming back from church, and I was on the staircase relaying the story to her and the only thing my mother said in a very angry voice was if I told you once get that gum out of your mouth and you know she just was unable to process that type of horrific event because I could have been in that car I was in that car just 20 minutes, you know, before. And, you know, I could have been the one who was dead. One night when I was 15, lying in bed, knowing that this is the end of my life, that I will never have the same life again, I swore that night that I would never do a drug because if I ever did a drug, I would get into serious trouble. And my thought was, how do you not drink? How do you go through life and not drink? From a young age, alcohol was it. You know, the parties, the fun, 
my parents relaxed, you know, we had people coming in, you know, it was pretty. Everything was pretty and spotless. We had a real bar and behind the bar were bottles and bottles and bottles of alcohol. And then we had in the basement, since my father was in construction, he would have friends. We had cases of alcohol that he either got from people or he gave to people. And I knew where the key was. So the idea of not drinking was completely preposterous. So to go through life and not drink was just, was not even a consideration. And that's, that's something I, I think a lot of people can relate to. I certainly can. So when, when did you start drinking? Well, I was drinking before the accident. And, you know, I promised that I would never, you know, that night um, when I got into trouble that night, I promised that I would never do, I promised myself that I would never do any drugs. And that promise lasted just a couple of years until, you know, someone showed me um, marijuana. And I thought that this was the best thing since sliced bread. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I laughed and I laughed. I became a real, a quick pothead in front of me. Mm -hmm. The only way, if heroin or ecstasy was in front of me, I would have done it. Mm -hmm. So there was no nobility there. There was no stop. It was anything that I could do to get myself out of myself, I would do because I did not like the person that I was and I didn't want to be myself because it was just too painful to feel and I would do anything that I could to not feel. Mm -hmm. Something powerful um, someone told me when I was in high school, which it wasn't powerful at the time, but uh, it certainly is now looking back, is it kind of plays into that moderation. You know, alcohol, it's, it starts out as fun and then it turns into fun with problems. Well, I heard once that I thought was great was once you take um, a cucumber and turn it into a pickle, there's no way of bringing it back to a cucumber again. So once you leave that stage where alcohol with problems, fun with problems, there's no way you're going back to the fun stage. Mm -hmm. and, and when you finally get to the problem stage, you're never going back to that fun stage. It just doesn't happen. Uh, you could, uh, kind of the transition from from that the fun with problems just in, into into the problems. Um, kind of your experience there, how, how you felt at the time, and and kind of you know when you hit your rock bottom, how, how you got to your rock bottom, and, and what happened. Well, I don't know if I hit my rock bottom yet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but um, uh, you know that I don't know. Well, let's see. You know, I was doing. Uh, the Studio 54 thing. I was doing the rollerblading thing. I was... Um, what was the um, the rollerblading thing? Oh, I, every night I, I would go out and go rollerblading. We'd get high and, and skate around and around and around and around. It was marvelous. It sounds like a lot of you fun. Know, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. But, you know, it became, it became my life. Right. You know, it opened you up to different things. You know, during that point in time, I, I did freebase. And um, when I did freebase, I was like, oh my God, this is the most incredible thing that I've ever done. And um, I'm grateful that I had the wherewithal to know not to ever do that again. It's, sorry, it, it might be, uh, sorry for my ignorance or, or generational terms. What is, what is freebase? <laughs> Uh, 
Freebase is um, is a man. Freebase is smoking uh, cocaine. Okay. And so it's like crack. Freebase is crack. Okay. But you buy crack already. Um, but Freebase was smoking cocaine. Oh. And that was um, that was pre-crack. Sorry for laughing. No, that's that's um, it's I, I did not know that was a term for it, but that's um, that's. Oh yeah, that, that was like it was it was ridiculous. And then you know I went to an amphetamine stage and blah blah blah. But you know, going to the point in time where you know I was in my late twenties, my mother was dying. I was depressed. Mm-hmm. I was taking. A couple of Prozacs a day. I had was smoking cigarettes. I had marijuana in my cigarette pack, and I was, you know, drinking vodka. You know, pretty much by myself. You know, out of the bottle, freezer, mouth, sometimes a glass. And I was living in this apartment, and the woman above me was an Al-Anon. And one night I came home after falling off a bar stool which is very embarrassing to fall off a ball stool. I mean, people talk about falling downstairs. That's understandable, but, but there's only one reason you're falling off a bar stool. And, you know, I'm in my bathroom, and her apartment is right above the air of the bathroom, and I'm crying, and I'm crying, and I'm crying. And she, the next day, gives me uh, a copy of the Al-Anon book. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And I go to an Al-Anon meeting, and I'm like, this is not for me. I'm the culprit. And then, you know, I can remember one day, you know, here I was, you know, I was single. I was doing my job. I wanted children. I wanted a relationship. And I didn't have that. I'd walk in the baby department and burst into tears. I'd walk down the street and and just be crying behind my dark glasses. So, I mean, here I was taking antidepressants and all this stuff and putting all marijuana and booze in my body are depressants. So, you know, they were counteracting each other. And I would walk down the street and just pray to God to take my life. Just like, dear Lord, just may it be over. And um, he did. He gave me a brand new life. You know, during that time, I would stay at home and I would um, sing with um, Billie Holiday. Me and Billie Holiday were best friends. Every night, I'd put her on the CD, and I would sing along with Billie Holiday, and she just sang sad, bluesy, boozy songs. And that's what I would do. I would sit, and I'd cry, and I'd drink, and I'd get high, and I'd sit, and I'd drink, and get high. I'd go to the work high, not knowing that anyone else would think you know, that it mattered, that I was invisible. You know, everything was was around drinking and drugs. And then one time I was fortunate enough to grow up on a house, in a house on the shore. And I was, I was there one day, a beautiful day. I was sitting on the deck overlooking the ocean, drinking a beer, smoking a joint. And the man who used to play the Nutcracker Suite um, at the roller skating rink. He was my friend. He um, 
friend and old boyfriend and he used to deal drugs to me. He would sell cocaine. He drove up in this brand new, beautiful black BMW. And he came in and, you know, where at the roller skating rink, he'd wear a silver lame. He looked phenomenal. Just what was amazing. And he came up and he asked me how I felt. Now, no one in their right mind would ask me how I felt because all I would do was vomit on them with negativity. He asked me how I felt, and he said that he was saving seats for me. I was like, what? When he had about a year, I ran into him on the street. And he said, oh, I'm having a year anniversary. Please come. And the street he had been, he had been clean for a year. Yeah. So he was having his year anniversary. Mm -hmm. He had been clean for a year and he invited me to come. And I went and I sat in that room and they were laughing and joking and having a good old time. And I was like, how could they laugh at this? This is serious business. You know, this is serious. And you know, I sat in the back with my coat on and it was like, this is serious business. How could they do this? And then I left there thinking, how do you go out to dinner and not drink? Because basically, you went out to dinner to drink and the food would absorb the alcohol. Mm -hmm. That's why you did it. Mm -hmm. And then how do you go to a ball game and not drink? Now, you would think that I went to a lot of ball games. That was not the case. How do you go at skiing and not smoke pot? How do you do that? How do you go up the chairlift and not smoke pot? So I was like a mess. Going forward, in the course of a month, I ran into him four times in the same place. And the last time I ran into him, he said, let me take you to a meeting. And this was right after, you know, I asked God to help me and take me away from this life. Mm. And he brought me to a meeting and he put me with the women and I was like a deer with big shining eyes in the, in the spotlight and terrified. And people were nice to me, but it didn't matter. I was still terrified. And this one woman came to my office every day and picked me up and we walked through the meeting together. And, you know, slowly, slowly, it changed. And what's happened to me over the past 30 years is that I've been brainwashed. My old ideas, my old way of thinking has been changed. And to a more pure, nurturing, compassionate me. I was not, I learned so many things that enabled me to change how I thought about myself, how I thought about the world, and what was important for me to do and accomplish. Such a powerful story and um, an amazing sequence of events. I just want to highlight something. Um, you said uh, this man, um, you know, you hit your rock bottom, you asked God to, to take your life, and, and you ran into this man four times 
after that in the course of a month in, in the same place. And that's quite the coincidence. You know, that, that helped you kind of face your issues and, and use the perfect word of brainwashing. That's, that's all we do in life is we brainwash ourselves and you can do it in a positive or a negative way. It's, it's really up to you and, and up to the stories you tell yourself and tell others. And um, I can't tell you how grateful I am that you did that, that you turn your life around. I mean, I really have only known you as the, as the you know, positive, sober, outgoing Trudy. And, um, you know, I, I can't tell you how, how much of a positive effect that's had on my life through the through the ups and through the downs, specifically the downs. Having someone non-judgmental, I could I could go to for advice. You know, I, I'm so grateful that you, that you were brave enough to, to face your issues, to ask for help, to go get help, and then um, to share your stories with me. You know, several times now, and 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 now to be brave enough to to share with this generation facing these issues and these confusion and hopeless. They don't have hope. When I ask you what you would tell them, what kind of advice you would give them and, and, and how your mindset has changed from take my life to, to where you are today. Well, I think that um, it wasn't bravery on my part. I think it was grace. I think that from the woman with Al-Anon who gave me the Al-Anon book to the woman who came to my office, I think that I had angels placed in my life that were willing to help me. And I think that I was able to see that they were angels. You know, because I've taken a really dramatic change in the way I look at things and the way I think. And the most important, and I can, in a heartbeat, go back to the person that I was but I have tools that I use and you know and the tools are really important to keep myself centered and to keep myself in the right mode because it can either be magical or it can be a disaster and I'm the one in control of that and that's really I think over my 30 years that's really what I have learned is that, you know, I am the master of this ship and I need to just control my thinking in alignment with the universe. Mm-hmm. And I would say anyone that is struggling, grace, prayer and meditation, for me, are the most important thing. For me, either God is everything or God is nothing. And that with that attitude, I can go through this pandemic, I can go through this period in time of isolation and be reasonably happy, be joyous, and be there to help other people. Because it's amazing, AA, I'm a member of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, And what's interesting is the only organization in the world where a tiny little fish will come into the pond and instead of being eaten by the big fish and swallowed up by the big fish and spit out, in AA, the big fish surround the little fish and nurture them and help them grow and help them change. And that's what happened with me. I was surrounded by big fish who took me under their wing 
and loved me until I could love myself. And the only thing that is required is that I have the ability to give this away and help other people. There is a line in uh, the big book, which at times is, I consider it the most heinous line ever written, but it's the most profound. And, you know, as we reflect on our day, is were we kind and loving towards all? And it means all. Not just the people I like. It means the people that I despise. And it's a way of life which enables us to expand our hearts and our minds so that the God in me can reach out and touch the God in you. And so for anyone who is struggling right now, there is only one answer that I tell people all the time, and that is prayer. And through my walking down the street crying and asking God to take my life, a series of circumstances happened in my life that changed my life. He did take my life. I am no longer that woman who cries on the street. And today, what's my life today? I'm single. I think a date is something that's on the calendar or a piece of fruit. You know, I don't have any children. I have the same job. So I have the same circumstances, basically. The same circumstances which, you know, 30 years ago made me cry and whine over my life and vomit on you in negativity is like, okay, this is my life. This is what I get. And, you know, the interesting thing about it is by not drinking and relying on a power greater than yourself, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know where your life is going to take you. You know, it's a magical, miracle tour. You don't know. You know, hold, put your seatbelt on. But if you drink and you drug, it's going to make any situation that you're in worse. And the only option that you have with that are jails, institutions, death, loneliness, despair, so, I mean, it's the greatest show in town. I highly recommend it. Like I said, I'm so grateful, and I'm sure there's so many other people who are grateful for you making that change in your life. And, you know, as we said before, our brains have beliefs, and they build, they build cases. They think that they're attorneys, and they build cases. And you can, have, you can make your beliefs positive or negative. It's fully up to us changing our beliefs. It takes a lot of work for sure, but it, it's fully up to us. We get to decide what our beliefs are. You know, build the positive, positive belief in your soul and your brain will, will pile on evidence to support it. I can hear it in your story. And every, every time I hear someone's story, I hear the exact same thing, that they just built a negative belief from people or society telling them things through the years. And their brain just looks for evidence. Their brain wants to be right more than their brain wants to be happy. Our brains want to be right more than they want to be happy. And we can confront it we have to confront it because there's, there's so much power and in, in positivity and having a happy life in you know sharing with others and, and in human connection and my thinking shortchanged me mm -hmm. and I know today that aside from being a famous ballerina or you know an astronaut whatever I put my mind to I can accomplish mm -hmm. and as Henry Ford said 
you know, if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you can't. But when I have a goal in mind and I have the tenacity to write it down and focus on it, um, it expands. So whatever I focus on expands. If I focus on happiness, it expands. If I focus on how miserable that person treated me, that expands. So I choose today to be happy and expand on the joy um, in life. And when I fall back into periods of remorse, I pick up the phone and I have learned to have the ability to pick up the phone and to speak to another like-minded person to help me get me back on track. Nothing more important than keeping my brain in alignment with the universe. In your life and, and finding that higher power and, and you know you use the word God and, and that's that's great. I don't think in my my view the word God doesn't even do the higher power justice because no it, God can mean numerous things. It can be the great outdoors. Mm-hmm. It can be dog spelled backwards. Mm-hmm. It can be group of drunks. So you know being Gertrude where they call me Trudy. You know, we have an amazing planet, and the most powerful thing that I have is my brain. Mm -hmm. And my brain dictates how I live my life. And there are so many, AA is not for everyone, but meditation, being quiet, giving the opportunity just to quiet down your mind so it's not racing with all of these thoughts is really important and the ability to just not think because my mind my brain wants to take off on a tangent and run with it mm-hmm. absolutely and I think everyone uh, shares that perspective so I really hope everyone listening out there internalizes Trudy's words and stories and goes out and, and if you need help seeks the help you need and and if you know someone out there struggling, you, you help them and share this uh, share this podcast with them. Share this story. There's so much power in sharing. There's so much power in hearing other people's experiences in going outside of yourself and reaching out to other people. You never know what people are feeling. There's such a big stigma around mental health and, and sharing, especially in, in this day and age. And you never know how people feel on the inside. When I was miserable, I, I wouldn't have dreamed of telling other people about it. I kept it to myself. I was... You know, I have plenty of stories of, of, you know, telling my mom to screw off when she tried to get me to go to therapy when I desperately needed it. And there's so many people out there like that. You know, if you looked at me from the outside at that time, I was a no- just a normal kid. I played sports. I had friends, you know, and I was struggling deeply on the inside. So please share this with anyone uh, you can. Please uh, reach out to others. Have them join our community. You know, I, I hope you really... I did enjoy this story and I hope you, uh, you know, in the future participate and are are willing to come and share your story as well. Everyone's stories matters and there is so much power in sharing.